I don't actually remember much, um, but I do remember I had just come out of a colonoscopy procedure and um, kind of come out slowly. And I remember some doctor, um, I'm assuming the gastroenterologist who did the procedure walked up to me and in this sort of hazy state said, you have ulcerative colitis. And that's all I re really remember from that moment. That was, that was the moment that I was actually diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside the healthcare system. In this podcast, we listen to the real-life stories of clinicians and patients and other healthcare professionals as they make their way through our complex U.S. healthcare system. My name is Jerry Patrol, and normally I'm the IT guy behind the scenes of the Health Stories podcast, but this is a special episode where we've changed places, Nicole and I, where she's going to be telling her story about her journey dealing with uh, ulcerative colitis. So thank you, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I usually say welcome to the podcast, so um, thank you for, uh, for doing this podcast with me, Jerry. So it really is a, a joint effort for those of you listening, even though I'm the one who does the interviews, Jerry does all the behind the scenes work. Well, and so you were, uh, the day you were diagnosed, that must have been kind of a traumatic event for you. What, how old were you? What were you doing in your life at that time? Um, I was uh, 29, 28, um, and I was actually teaching at a university at the time with uh, my master's degree, and I remember my dad came, of all people, um, for this colonoscopy where I was diagnosed, and I actually have it in a performance I wrote where it was really surreal to have my dad, who is not usually an emotionally... Um, sort of expressive person um, to be there and to later tell me how hard it was for him to watch me get wheeled away and um, to hear the diagnosis. Um, although I don't know that he was there. I think they told me, you know, when I was still coming out, which I don't know, if, <laughs> to this day, I don't know why a clinician would tell somebody is they're still partially sedated, um, any, any diagnosis, but it was, um, it was a hard time because it was difficult teaching and grading and prepping and um, and I didn't feel like I had a lot of support from my colleagues because I didn't really know them very well so I kept everything hidden and I remember even in the midst of being diagnosed I worked full-time I don't think I took a day off Wow and I wanted to touch on something that you you mentioned in your intro how you were still coming out in the haze of the procedure and a doctor just walks in tells you oh you've got this and then walks away is that I mean, how did that make you feel? I mean, that sounds like almost like being abandoned by the person you're trusting the most in that very vulnerable time. I mean, to be honest, I was I was so tired because when you come out of sedation, you're not really aware of what you're doing and who you are, and it almost like for me it often makes me very dizzy. So I feel like I'm in this like liminal space. I don't even know what's going on. And I was so out of it still that I actually had to ask if it happened. You know, I wasn't even sure that that had actually occurred. Um, and so the next appointment that I had is when I was able to say, is this what happened? What is this? I have no idea what ulcerative colitis is. Can someone explain this to me? Okay, so it didn't mean that much to you no. in that moment. Okay. No, okay. I didn't even know. Um, I just remember him using a lot of terminology, and I think he said colitis. In fact, he might have just said, like, IBD. 
um, you know, because I, I went through many diagnoses. I had ulcerative colitis and Crohn's and then undifferentiated, and I've had more than 10 colonoscopies, so I, mm -hmm. I, I, I actually don't remember. Okay, so, and we, colonoscopies are more normal in people over 50, I guess, is the normal time frame when people start to have them, but you've had them yeah. a lot earlier than that. So how, how long were you having symptoms before you actually got this diagnosis? Uh, many years. So many people with autoimmune diseases, I've heard this in, in research, that many of us um, live with symptoms for years and sometimes even decades before we actually get diagnosed. And mine would be that case. I had a lot of, you know, diarrhea and a lot of abdominal pains. Hope no one's eating, listening to this. <laughs> and so um, I just get used to talking about poop and bowel movements a lot. And, um, and so as a result, I... Um, you know, I look back and I say, wow, I, I had symptoms way back in college, like years earlier, and I just didn't know until it got so bad that I was in the emergency room a lot and in and out of the hospital, and they were trying to figure out what was going on, and they thought I had Giardia at one point, which is, which is an intestinal parasite, so they gave me really strong antibiotics, which makes your colitis worse because it can take away some of the good flora and fauna in your, in your colon. <laughs> so. I mean, they were just grasping at straws, and, and it, it took a long time for them to figure out what was going on. Wow. Now, I know you mentioned that you couldn't really rely on or talk about it to your colleagues at the time. You didn't have much support, and part of that was because it, it is what, what you've called in the past uh, or, or how it might be known as a hidden illness and something that is not readily visible to the people around you. Was that... Who, who were you able to rely on when you were having these symptoms? Who did you confide in that, that you were going through this, if anybody? Um, I definitely confide in my family, but that was uh, a real kind of, looking back, it was sort of a burden for them um, because they were four hours away in another state. Um, I, I'm desperately trying to remember who I confide in, and I must have confided in somebody to help me. Um, but I was afraid of my job. I was afraid that people would find out that I had an illness and that would be detrimental to my work because I was a non-tenured faculty member. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to get, um, you know, bad uh, evaluations. And I, won't, I, I was already reprimanded. I showed up a minute to class late once. I remember that literally once in the two years I worked there and I got written up wow, for that one minute and I was so I was I was very fearful to say anything and so I worked very hard to keep it hidden and uh, and apparently did a good job at it nobody knew or most people didn't know I had a um, I had a roommate uh, office mate um, who I um, do remember talking about at some point with her and, and appreciate her support and confidentiality during that time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I didn't really tell people until many, many months later, or years later. For people who don't know much about UC and what it entails, I mean, can you just in general touch on some of the, the aspects of it that might make it difficult to do, to do your job? Um, or any, anyone's job for that matter? Yeah, yeah. ulcerative colitis is um, one of many different types of inflammatory bowel disease. And because it's an autoimmune disease, um, your white blood cells attack your intestines primarily, or for colitis, your colon. Um, but for Crohn's disease, it can, it can really affect any part from your mouth all the way down to your anus, so any aspect of your entire intestinal system. But what people don't 
know, um, some people don't know, is that because it's an autoimmune disease, it can also affect other parts of your body. So, you know, when I have a flare, my joints hurt, and I'm exhausted, and I can have massive weight loss and, and all kinds of other symptoms. Um, so going to the bathroom a lot was, was a challenge because I'd have to run to the bathroom. You're not walking anywhere, so you really have to know where the bathroom is because I go, you know, 10, 12 or more times a day. Um, but then figuring out what to eat, you know, I was eating anything I could keep in my system and sometimes there are things that, you know, I couldn't eat. Um, getting enough sleep and enough um, hydration was a challenge and, yeah. you know, so it was, it was really a lot of work performing healthy. Um, I was trying to look healthy, be healthy, and most people would be like, wow, I never knew. I just saw that you lost a lot of weight or you look right. tired. Um, and so I often wear suit coats and jackets and, you know, dress up a lot. And I often dress up more when I'm not feeling well, and I dress up less when I am feeling well. It's interesting to sort of, you know, counter that impression. But um, ulcerative colitis is um, definitely more than just going to the bathroom and the intestinal part. It really does sort of affect your whole life. Right. What are some of the things you, you found yourself doing or strategies you found to, to cope with that or things that you've heard other people with UC do? Um, well, one is knowing where all the bathrooms are. Um, I actually got a booklet. Um, you can get these online, too, for people. Like, uh, when you go to a city, you know, they can tell you where they are located. Public bathrooms? Different, different bathrooms oh. are, yeah. Um, and, and sort of being aware. I, I used to carry a card. That said, I have also colitis. I need to need to use the bathroom in case. Uh, I think it was like for the plane or something to say, you know, I really, I really need to go. So oh, like they were a like doctor's note for the. Yeah, well, I mean, kind of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, sort of. Um, you know, so so knowing where bathrooms are is, is important. But I think the big thing and and sort of a theme throughout all of these podcast interviews is really knowing yourself because what works for one person, like for me, controlling or being aware of my diet has really helped. Um, so I'm very aware that uh, gluten affects my colon, um, soy has a different effect on my body, dairy has a different effect, so watching what I eat makes a difference. Um, like I said, getting enough sleep is really big for me. If I'm tired, man, I can feel it. Um, so I think it's, it's different for different people. I mean, I remember going to a support group um, when I was a grad student and people I'll never forget this woman um, was in remission, and I thought, oh my gosh, how amazing. How is she in remission? And she was older. All, the, the people that were in remission were older, which I have since found that it is likely that you have a better chance of going into remission as you age because, and I can't remember if it was a gastroenterologist who told me or, or another physician, I think it was a gastroenterologist, um, that your hormones change and your body changes and that actually can improve your colitis over time. Interesting. Um, but then most often people get um, diagnosed in their 20s, like mid to late 20s, and then again in their like 60s. And so that might make sense in terms of like hormonal changes. Um, but, uh, but to answer your question, it, it, it really depends on the person. And so I think just being aware of your lifestyle and, and your individual mm -hmm. choices and what you eat and sleep and exercise is big. Um, I know lifting weights helps, and someone had mentioned that makes sense because you're sort of creating minor tears in your in your muscle as you lift weights, and and your immune system can focus on that instead of focusing on on your intestines. Oh. And so I've 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 heard all kinds of things. Um, 
the more um, sort of extreme I've heard of people um, drinking like whipworms and different um, intestinal worms that can actually sort of sew up. Um, and I'm using sew sort of with, with scare quotes, quotes can kind of like sew up you know, parts of your intestine inside and all of the... People eat the worms to... You sort of drink this concoction, yeah, to, to, to wow. help um, with that. And I, I wrote about it in my book. It's called Dirty Tail. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a section in there where I talk about different um, non-traditional uh, medications and treatments people have used to, to address this, this illness. So. I'm glad you brought up your book because I know you've written about this quite a bit and performed done performances, you know, talking about your illness and your experiences with it. Um, so, and, and that's a lot of people when, I know when they get a, a diagnosis, whether it be cancer or something else, they, they often find a way to make some good come out of it. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about the good that's been able to come out of your diagnosis. So um, it took a long, it took me a while to get to that point. Um, the turning point for me, when people ask me about writing about my illness um, was in grad school. It was uh, Dr. Ron Pelius's class and it was an autoethnography course. And I'll never forget, um, he had... What's autoethnography? Just so oh, a br yeah. brief explanation is, is really um, situating the personal story within a, a cultural context and, and critiquing those lived experiences. Okay. Um, so it takes narrative to another level to be able to um, sort of analyze one's uh, membership inside a culture. Okay. Um, and so then this autoethnography class, he had asked us, you know, to take a topic to write about. And I went to his office and said, I have no idea what to write about. And I, I don't know if I had disclosed already to him or somehow I had said I have this illness. And I'll, I'll, I vividly remember saying, no one wants to hear about poop and <laughs> no one's going to want to read about ulcerative colitis. And he said, give it a try. Just try it. Just write about it and see. And um, that was really the turning point in my whole life because I had so many stories inside of me. I didn't know how to get them out. And I just assumed nobody wanted to hear about them. And, you know, so that ended up um, leading to my book, which was my dissertation, and, and I did a performance. I wrote and, you know, co-directed a performance called It Takes Guts, colon, get it, colon, um, <laughs> <laughs> spelling with dis-ease. Um, and I've written a number of, of papers of revealing and concealing ill identity. I wrote a book chapter not too long ago about ulcerative colitis remission because I have been in remission um, and, uh, and working on some other um, articles as well and so I, I really dedicated my whole life to this um, for two reasons one is it's it's helpful to get those stories that aren't told you know so the silenced the dirty tales that's why I labeled that um, my book because I wanted people to talk about the thing that doesn't get talked about I mean it's not like you're sitting at your family dining room table and you know could you pass the green beans by the way I have pooped a lot recently <laughs> so I don't you know I don't know what's going on with my health and it's just not a topic people talk about the grotesque I, I wrote about that too this notion of the grotesque it's it's anything that has to do with bodily fluids we we don't talk about those things very often it's not open conversation um death is another topic we we as a society often feel uncomfortable discussing 
and so it's important to tell the stories that are often left mm -hmm. un, you know untold yeah and I know you've had a couple of at least a, two three four different podcasts dealing with things like that I remember one specifically the no more whispering about women's health oh yeah and so I mean so the, the podcast itself is something very good that seems to have come out of that uh, as an extension of your your work in revealing people's stories yeah well and I, I'm <laughs> I should mention the podcast um, oops, sorry about that um, the podcast is really a labor of love you know I've had people ask me you know why why did you start the podcast and it came as an idea of really wanting to um, create something that people could understand and share their stories doing it. And so as a narrative scholar, an autoethnographic scholar, you know, I thought it was important for people to tell their stories and not to have a podcast just for patients, which often end up being about a particular condition, um, and not have a podcast just for clinicians, which often ends up being, you know, insights of things they should do or say um, in their clinical identities, but to talk about our lived experiences, our stories, and to offer insights to people about what they've learned as a patient or a clinician or a caregiver or a loved one. Um, and so I, I wanted this outlet for people to come and say, yes, I have a story to tell. I wanna talk about this experience I've had living with a certain condition, or I wanna talk about how challenging it's been, you know, trying to work with patients um, with opioid addiction or, or whatever it is. Um, and so that's really where the, the podcast came about. And, and there's been a lot of great feedback that we've gotten about it, you know, people who really appreciate getting that kind of insight that, like you said, normally things people don't want to talk about. So, you know, I, I know that you usually ask your guests, um, you know, what, what tips they would give to other patients in their own, their own, in the same situation. So what tips would you offer for people who are going through UC or one of the related illnesses, Crohn's, IBD, those kind of things? Um, that's a great question because I think, I think it really goes back to each person and it's hard to, I mean, looking, look, so I've had it now for, let's see, I was diagnosed in 2002. So going on 17 years this October, um, you know, the, the one thing I, I say, and I've, I've heard other people on the podcast too, which I it resonated with me, um, is to be able to figure out your own body. And there's so much, and I'm, I'm teaching this in my class right now about um, construction of of health identities is that we as a community, especially within Western medicine, are quick to link symptoms to diagnoses and treatment. And that's sort of the protocol that we go through in terms of trying to understand an illness. And I often feel like we don't take the time to understand our own bodies, which are unique and individual. And so when we're prescribed medication or treatment or even physical regimens, for example, or alternative um, types of therapies, um, you know, these are really just best guesses from the clinical world, you know, and they're evidence-based, um, you know, and, and often there's a lot of knowledge and experiences that other clinicians have had. So I appreciate when clinicians share their own stories to say, oh, I had a, a 
patient who did really, I just had a clinician recently say, oh, I had a patient who did really well on turmeric. I'm like, oh, really? And uh, as a result, um, you know, I looked into turmeric and I had been using aloe vera. But, you know, really figuring out what works for you. And so taking all of the advice with a grain of salt until you figure out how your body responds to each thing. And always, for me, it was being open-minded to alternatives to other forms of medications and treatments. Um, but I think the other big thing is figuring out what my identity is as somebody with an illness. And that has really changed over time. You know, So I don't see myself the same way. I, I had sort of a chaotic identity in the beginning because I wanted so hard, I, I so badly wanted to resist what was happening to me and it took me a long time to accept it and then figure out how to address this new identity, this new illness I had and so now it's become part of more sort of my salvaged identity, who I was before my illness and who I am now. And um, I can just say to, to anybody listening, you know, be kind to yourself. It, it takes time. Um, it's not easy to figure out who your new you is. Um, and it doesn't mean it's, it's a, a worse you, it means it's a different you. And what your body needs and, and what you need as a person is, is going to be unique and different from what everyone else is doing. And so it's important to figure out what works for you. It sounds like you're really saying that to be, yeah, that be malleable and not afraid to experiment. And this sounds like it could apply to really any kind of illness, you know, not just UC, but anything. Yeah, I, I just want to add the, the experiment part can be scary because, and that's where it gets really challenging because, you know, there's experimenting with new medications that are out there or new biologics like Chimera um, was new at the time many years ago. And um, turmeric might be scary because, you know, even, even though it's a root that's in food, that's new for people. You know, and so it's really hard when you have an illness, you know, to not feel scared about everything you put in your body because you don't know how your body's going to respond. And so that can be the scariest is you don't want to do anything to make your illness worse, you know, but at the same time you're being told that this might make it better, but you don't know. Maybe the thing you're going to do makes it worse. And so it's almost, I, I personally became fearful putting anything into my body and so I was resistant to a lot of things and that wasn't helping me either you know so it really was many years of, of trying mm -hmm. to figure out what worked do you find did you find you got pushback um, when while you were in this experimentation process taking or, or experimenting in non-traditional remedies whether it's something like acupuncture or like you know, root roots turmeric or or Chinese herbs for example I've heard that before Is, have you did you get pushback from the medical community the physicians you were dealing with about that yeah um, yeah I would say definitely more so um, years ago um, now it, it really depends on the individual. I, I think it's individual to clinicians. Some clinicians are more open-minded than, than others, perhaps, and that's sort of how they were clinically brought up. Um, I think there seems to be more open-mindedness to using um, multiple forms of treatment. So you might take a biologic um, or get a biologic or take medication and do acupuncture. Um, and so I find more clinicians seem to be more open-minded these days to trying um, sort of combinations that, that work for you. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't remember that 17 years ago. I think there was a little more pushback. Mm -hmm. So then um, 
segueing from from that into what tips you might offer um, physicians who are dealing, you know, with with patients in the situation. As as a educator of, of physicians, what uh, <laughs> what uh, points could you drop? Uh, a quick, quick couple of uh, tips. Yeah, I love I love asking this question of other people because um, I think we struggle with this the most is you know, how do you teach people to be open-minded and individualistic? And that's really hard because so much of medicine, the, the medical curriculum is so much about rote learning and knowing a particular um, equation. And there's always a prescriptive way of doing things. And so how do you teach sort of that qualitative mentality that, you know, or an open-minded or, or a critical mentality? Um, so that's really challenging. Um, with, I would say in my experiences, um, one thing that has, um, I don't know. <laughs> this is a really hard question. I think for clinicians, one of the things is um, to, and I, and I teach the idea of implicit bias, is to really listen to each patient's concerns and stories. Um, and the most bizarre or you know unique form of treatment or whatever they're using maybe works for them and that and that helps them mentally too you know we have to think of all the the limbs go back to will miller's clinical hand um and ben crabtree's adaption adaptation of the clinical hand this this idea of thinking about the emotional and the spiritual and so when treating somebody you know, it's not just about the medication you need to change for them because the current medication isn't working, but how is this going to affect them? You know, and asking questions about what are your concerns and uh, what has worked in the past and, and why don't you want to use a biologic, for example. I, I have a clinician I've worked with who is very heavy on um, medication, and she said I use a very aggressive approach. And I thought, oh goodness, you know, <laughs> I, I don't like using an aggressive approach unless I have to. And it's been very hard talking with her, but I, I have to find the courage to say to her, I don't want to do that. Um, and that's where we had this beautiful moment where she said, have you tried turmeric? Because she was, mm -hmm. you know, listening and I was, you know, asking her to listen. And she said, oh, well, here's, a, here's an alternative. Um, but I wonder how long it takes to get to that point. Um, and so really, other people have said this on the podcast, um, speaking up for yourself, um, being an advocate for yourself, um, and asking for what you need. And um, that can really, really be hard to do in a very paternalistic environment where, you know, clinicians know all and are, are telling you the best evidence-based, you know, answer to something and uh, that may not work for you. So it sounds like, <clears throat> sounds like you're suggesting to the clinician just listen a little bit more, offer some alternatives. Maybe you don't know everything in this moment. Yeah. Maybe you do, okay. okay. Yeah, um, and I think the, the listening, you know, as a communication scholar, um, that is really key and there's so many studies that show that people really aren't, clinicians really aren't taking the time to listen and to really stop and, you know, pay attention actively listen, but also to offer an empathic um, response too. I, I, I teach empathy and I think just saying this can be really difficult or I hear what you're saying about you know how much pain you're in, that can go a long way too for people to open up and, and feel confident to express what, what's happening. So, as, opposed, you know. as opposed to dropping a diagnosis as you're coming out of sedation. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
Um, yes, as a hypothetical example. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, well, we're coming up on the end of our time here, so I just wanted to see if you had any uh, parting thoughts to offer. Um, wow, it really does go by fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just want to say to people, um, you know, kind of about the podcast and about this journey, I, I first want to thank everybody for listening. Um, you know, the like I said, this has really been a labor of love because we're, we're not making any money on this podcast. <laughs> In fact, we're losing money. Um, and it, it doesn't matter when you have something that you really believe strongly in and having been a patient in this system and now as a medical educator, a clinical communication specialist, specifically for clinicians, you know, it's, it's my lifelong journey um, to be able to try to help others, both as patients and clinicians, to navigate through the system. And if we can pause once in a while to listen to each other and to be present and to offer a hand or support or an empathic statement, you know, we really make um, healthcare a kinder place. And, and that's really challenging given time constraints and, um, you know, competing uh, priorities and our views and everything else, administrative work that has to be done. Um, and for patients too, you know, without healthcare, um, insurance and, and their time constraints, it, it really puts us almost at odds when we, when we face each other. Um, but to be human beings in, in this moment and to try to connect on a human level, um, it, it would be such, such a more wonderful place to be. And I, and I really believe that healthcare is a place that we care about each other's health. Um, and I hope, to, I hope to everybody listening that they can continue to make those changes personally and if they work in the healthcare system professionally. So I invite everybody on that journey journey with us. Well, thank you, Nicole, and thank you for allowing me to be on this side of the mic today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for all of your work, making sure every podcast gets edited um, and uh, gets out there. You bet. We want to thank everybody for listening, as usual. If you haven't already, please like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. Uh, Please subscribe, if you haven't already, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, we're on Facebook, uh, like I just said. <laughs> I always <laughs> uh, get it wrong, yeah. too. <laughs> Our blog is nicoledeffenbaugh.com slash blog, and all of our episodes can be found there. So again, And Twitter. And on Twitter. At Stories. At Stories Health. <laughs> uh, thank you again for listening. This is Jerry Patrol for Health Stories. <laughs>